Good morning. Let's turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. It just so happens in a sense that even though this isn't a traditional Christmas message, studying the Kings and Chronicles and those type things, it does uh, turn out that this morning part of the passage that I'll be looking at will have one of the more popular verses that's used at this time of the year in Isaiah and chapter 7. We're going to look this morning at the story of two kings, actually the story of a father and a son, and consider a little bit about the life of King Ahaz at a particular juncture in his life, and also King Hezekiah. It's a study of two kings, it's a study of a father and a son, it's a study in contrast. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 7. And I'll begin reading from verse 1. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Remember that expression there, or that statement that's used there in that particular place. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed, and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it. and Let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We were studying last night in the book of Isaiah, brief though it was, a bit of an overview of some of the first part in the chapter. Some of the passages that had to do with the kings that reigned during the uh, lifetime of Isaiah, the kings that are Three of them listed here, Ahaz, Jotham, Uzziah, and then ultimately uh, Hezekiah. 
And we noticed back in the Chronicles some of the statements that were made about how individual kings either did or did not follow the Lord. And one of the things that we examined a little bit is when it comes to the prophets, there are times when we have to um, understand the viewpoint of the prophet because often things that they prophesied looked well beyond their immediate situation. So some of the time you have to look and see, okay, this is pertaining to Israel as it was then in the historical setting, but a part of that prophecy goes way beyond the immediate fulfillment to some future fulfillment, and some of them even yet to be fulfilled. So that's part of the task of uh, interpreting some of the prophecies that are given. And it's that way here. We have an immediate situation, but that immediate situation causes a prophecy to be given in chapter 7 and verse 14 that goes beyond the immediate situation. And we know that ultimately it was fulfilled uh, as we read about it in the first part of Matthew's gospel and what the angel said there concerning the birth of the Son of the Lord Jesus in this world, his incarnation. So I'm not trying to confuse or muddy the waters, simply to say that it is sometimes a difficult task to ascertain which parts of a prophecy have to do with just the immediate, which go beyond to another fulfillment, and which go beyond even that perhaps to yet a future fulfillment as well. We're primarily going to concern ourselves this morning, though, with the situation that Ahaz found. Now, you, you may remember that um, Ahaz was a king that was notorious because of his um, disobedience to the things of God. Ahaz was a wicked king. Uh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, there's a statement that was made about him that uh, there was... No king as evil as Ahaz was at that particular time. He was a king who did not follow the word of God, sought to substitute things in place of what God's word said, introduced practices among the people of God that were uh, contrary and foreign to what God had said. And so he was a wicked and an evil king. But he had a son named Hezekiah. And as children often can do, even in the society in which we find ourselves living, in the world and time in which we live, they are able, by the grace of God, to rise above the situation that they are, find themselves in. And uh, certainly with God's salvation and God's help, they don't have to follow in the footsteps of those who perhaps are not following the Lord. So that was true with Hezekiah. Now, David had the last week's study on, on the life of Hezekiah, or at least part of that life, and I'm sure he did a, an, an able and capable job, but as he knows, and as you know, and as I know, there's a lot to uh, that life of Hezekiah. Matter of fact, when it comes to Hezekiah, he's unique in the Scripture for this reason. That is that there are three portions of Scripture that will recount some of the history of Hezekiah's life. Not all the kings get that. He gets a lot of treatment. Second Kings and Chronicles, and again, in the historical section of the book of Isaiah, there's a, a rather lengthy set of chapters that will deal with uh, 
particular situation in the life of Hezekiah. So there's a lot there, but again, we want to think about these kings. So there was, there's also a lot going on this time politically. If we had a wall chart or a map behind us, we could envision the little strip of land known as Israel, and even as it was in that day. And amazingly, when you see it up against the sea as it is, you look at the countries that surrounded it, and it was always surrounded with hostile uh, countries and countries that either wanted to take over its territory or if not purely take it over for the purpose of, of um, you know, having that place for their own, at least going through there on their way to wars in various places. So where it was situated, it was in a sense surrounded. You've got a further complicated situation because at this stage in the history of Israel, remember the nation was split. And so you have the tribes that were in the north, the ten tribes in the north, the two tribes of the south, uh, Judah and Israel, and things were so bad that the king of uh, Israel, in verse uh, 1 you see, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, he's now going to join a coalition with these other kings to come against Judah if Judah doesn't join with him. Because what's happening is that the empire of Assyria is marching through that area, and they're starting to take different uh, kingdoms and so on. And so they did back then what even nations sometimes do today. They formed coalitions. And basically, the pressure was on to say, if you don't join us in this coalition to fight with us, well, we're going to come against you. So even the king of Israel now is going to come against the king of Judah. Imagine that. That was the situation. And so Ahaz is threatened by these kings who uh, want to form an alliance. And in the end, instead of joining in with their alliance he leans on the arm of the flesh. He chooses to make an alliance with the king of Assyria. And it's a, a disaster, really, after that. And so Isaiah is told by God to go and to meet Ahaz. And he goes and he meets him, as it says in verse 3, at the end of the conduit of the upper field in the highway of the fuller's field. Now, not to get too far off in the out in the weeds on this, but at that stage, and you'll find it stated in the life of Hezekiah, these conduits, um, which were sort of tunnels, were a way of allowing water to flow either in or out of the city. And they were very critical, particularly if the city came under siege. They had to have a water source. So they often tried to conceal them. There's a certain significance about that. I don't want to go into that in, in any depth today except to say we're going to see this come up again when we look at the life of Hezekiah. But imagine now to this king who was a wicked king, God sends the prophet to him, the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet says to him, this is what the Lord says, if you will do thus and so, you're not going to have to worry about this coalition that's coming against you. You're not going to have to worry about them taking your land, taking your kingdom, or any of that. If you, if you believe, if you don't believe, uh, well, you will surely not be established. 
And then the Lord takes it a step further. The Lord, apparently through the prophet, says to Ahaz, Ask a sign. Ask a sign of the Lord God. Ask it either in the depth or ask it in the height above. Imagine that. The Lord coming to this wicked king and saying to him, I want you to ask the Lord to do something. And don't make it small. You make it really big. You make it a sign that's so big that there won't be any question about the fact of how that sign was made to come to pass. It will be a clear evidence of the reality of the true and the living God. Ask a sign, whatever it is. And so Ahaz is exhorted to look to the Lord. He is offered this sign in verses 10 and 11. But Ahaz says, in a sort of a false piety, a false sense of sanctimoniousness, you know, where he's just, oh, you know, I wouldn't want to tempt the Lord. You know, that wouldn't be a good thing to do. I couldn't possibly uh, ask or tempt the Lord. Well, when the Lord asks you to do something, you're not tempting the Lord if it's the Lord who's asked you to do that thing. And it was just a sense of false uh, holiness on his part, if you want to call it that, when he was exhorted to look to the Lord and to believe. And what it was is that his faithless heart refused to ask and to believe in God. That's what it was. This was a message, as it was said, for those who believe. Abandon your trust in Assyria. Abandon your trust in the flesh and what it can produce. Trust in the Lord. God will perform it. And yet he refused to believe. How long, the Lord says, will you weary me? And so his faithless heart, he chose instead of trusting in the Lord to put his confidence in man, in Assyria, in that power and what he thought they could produce. It's easy for us to sit this morning and think, well, that's a old, archaic message of a long time ago and kings and kingdoms and wars and battles and fighting and all those kind of things. And what does that have to do with us today? It is interesting, isn't it? I've often mentioned the fact that when Paul examines in the book of Romans in chapter 10 why it is that Israel is not saved, how could they have missed their Messiah who was sent to them? And he begins to analyze why it is that Israel wasn't saved. And in analyzing why Israel wasn't saved, gives us an analysis of why it is anybody doesn't come to get saved. And when he wants to describe what you might call the easiness of salvation, that it's not a complicated thing, I ask myself, and I ask you, where would you turn in your Bible if you wanted to describe to somebody that salvation is not a difficult thing in that sense? It's not a 
complicated or complex thing that you have to work at, where would you turn? And Paul turns back to the book of Deuteronomy, probably the last place that we would choose. But that's where the Spirit of God prompts him to turn. And he says, say not in your heart that, you know, you have to bring Christ up from the depths or he's got to go down. He's already come down, you see. Say not that you've got to, you know, reach up into the very heights of the heavens and so on. What does the Word of God say to you, he says? That the Word of God is near to you. How near is it? It's even in your heart. It's even in your mouth. So that if you just confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Israel didn't find that righteousness because they went about trying to establish their own righteousness by their own works and self-effort. And so the comparison is similar, isn't it? God says, you don't have to ask for some great sign. The greatest thing has already been done. Christ has come down. And he has ascended back into heaven. God has given evidence. You simply believe. Wrap your heart around it. Embrace that truth. Abandon trust in your own self-effort. Your own doing good. Being good. Religious things and place your confidence and your trust in the Lord. And yet millions of people miss it, don't they? I hope you haven't missed it this morning if you're here. We certainly don't. We learn from the bad example of Ahaz what it meant to not trust the Lord. And yet the graciousness of God to give something that went beyond his immediate situation to the house of David... The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Let's fast forward now into the middle of the book of Isaiah to chapter 36. We come to the life of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had a remarkable beginning. One of the interesting things is that in all the sections where you study Hezekiah, it's always important to see what he did at the first. Whether in Chronicles where he began by opening the doors of the house of the Lord or so on. Or whether it's back in Second Kings in chapter 18. Where, <laughs> where he uh, expressed his confidence in the Lord. And you remember that little phrase where he uh, also took the brazen serpent that they had from the days of Moses. And he destroyed it. People had made an idol out of it. He called it Nehushtan, which means it's nothing but a piece of stupid metal. That's a very literal paraphrase of the Hebrew, but that's basically what it means. It's nothing but a piece of metal. You guys are trusting a piece of metal. Who would put their confidence in a piece of metal? You'd be amazed, wouldn't you? How many people have some sort of little thing that they put their confidence in? Whether it's a cross, or whether it's an icon, or an image, or something like that, people put their confidence in. And so Hezekiah had tremendous beginning, didn't he? 
Notice it says in chapter 36 and verse 1, it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and he took them. Now that was an ominous thing. The defense cities of Judah that was their first line of defense. So you had certain outpost cities and they served as sort of a barrier. You know, if the fenced, if the defensed cities fell, that was your first line of defense. That was gone now. And basically the only thing left was to retreat inside the walls of the city because they were going to lay siege to the city and, and surround you. So here they were. They're breathing down his neck. They've taken the first defense cities of Judah. And the king of Assyria sends the Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem under King Hezekiah with a great army. And notice where he stood. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. So he's standing in the exact same place that his father had stood where the Lord told the prophet Isaiah, go and meet him at that specific spot. And here he is. Now he's standing in the same place where the challenge had gone forth to his faithless father to trust God and believe God and God will work it out. And Hezekiah is going to have a great challenge. And you remember the challenge, and I'm sure David probably brought this out, the taunt from the Rabshika, this representative from the king of Assyria who, Assyria, who said in verse 4, where is your confidence? Where are you placing your trust, Hezekiah? And God sends Isaiah the prophet to Hezekiah to tell him, basically, listen, if you will trust in me, because Hezekiah was under the same pressure. You'll read a lot in Isaiah in some of these chapters. Woe unto those that go down to Egypt. Why? Because again, form an alliance. The country's around. Let's get together. Let's form a coalition. We can stand and fight against this king of Assyria. And Isaiah the prophet's going to be told to go to Hezekiah and say, Don't trust in Egypt. Put your confidence and trust in the Lord. And if you'll put your confidence and trust in the Lord, well, basically he tells him, you know, they won't even shoot an arrow over the walls of the city. What were the odds of that happening? Get an army of a couple hundred thousand people and some soldier just randomly thinking, you know, I'm just going to launch one over the wall. <laughs> they won't even shoot an arrow over the wall of the city. Now, keep your place there, but turn forward to chapter 38. Chapter 38 of Hezekiah. I mean of uh, Isaiah. <laughs> We've all looked for that book of Hezekiah in the past, I'm sure. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that what you are reading here in those days, what days? The days when the king of Assyria came up against the city. And why do I say that? Because if you know the rest of the story, you know that uh, Hezekiah had 15 years that were added to his life. Now, I'm not great at math. It's never my strong suit. But you'd notice back in chapter 36 it said, in the 14th year of the reign of Hezekiah. And if you read in the book of Kings, it will tell you that Hezekiah reigned 
29 years. So in the 14th year this happened, God then added 15 years to his life. So it came to pass that in those days, so to further complicate the situation, here's Hezekiah, the defensed cities have fallen, and he is sick unto death. The Lord said to him, set your house in order, for you're going to die. You're not going to live. Imagine now, it's one thing to be a king. It's another thing to be a king and the invading army who's taken like everything around you and all these surrounding countries just sweeping through the land is now breathing down your neck and your defensed cities have fallen and you're sick unto death. And the challenge goes forth again. Where is your confidence? Who are you trusting in? And the prophet comes to Hezekiah. And the word of the Lord came in verse 4 to Isaiah saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. This shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that, that he has spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of degrees which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz. Imagine standing in the very place initially he was, the conduit by the upper field where his faithless father had stood. And now your father made a sundial. I'll tell you what, I told him to ask for a sign, he wouldn't do it. But now... And we had, we'd have to read the corresponding passages. Do you remember that the Lord put forth a proposal to him? Should I make the shadow of the sundial go forward, or should I make it go backward? And Hezekiah said, well, you know, going forward, that's sort of a natural thing. Make it go backward. Now, we're not exactly sure what the sundial was. We often think of a sundial as that, you know, the round thing with a little arrow that the shadow falls in a way to tell time. Some of the historians tell us that actually what Ahaz had done in his palace was to make a, a series of steps. And those steps were sort of calibrated so that as the sun went through its journey through the sky, or as the earth revolves around, you know, as we know, um, the, uh, as the shadow fell, it was a way of marking time. So in that sense, it was like a sundial, the shadow of the steps. You notice where it says, and this is important, I'll bring again the shadow of the degrees, of the steps. Uh, in the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees by which degrees it was gone down. Imagine now, the shadow begins to go in reverse. Ahaz, ask of me a sign. Make it something big. How about causing the shadow to reverse itself? You see, where Ahaz wouldn't believe, Hezekiah was given a choice which way you want it. Well, don't make it go this way. That's just a natural phenomena. Make it go backwards. And that's the very thing that God did. Then the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. 
he begins to speak about what had happened in his life and how the Lord had responded to his prayer and so on. I won't read the whole passage for sake of time, but I do want to look at one thing that's found. It says in verse 20, The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. I want to add one other thing, and this is important. And I want to add it. It's a little bit out of the context, but it's not contrary to the context. Now, most of you know that back in 2008 and 2009, I had uh, undergone treatment for a uh, life-threatening disease. I had a form of hepatitis C, which is much easier to treat now than it was back then. They only gave me a 40% chance of having a full recovery. And so I went through those treatments. And as I went through those treatments, I um, went into the doctor with my wife, and he began to tell tell me that, now you're going to be taking these medications, but uh, as they do with medications, there's side effects, you know, possible. They list those. But this was different because he said, now, out of all these side effects, you can count on getting at least 10 or 12 of them. Anemia, uh, you know, uh, sleeplessness, insomnia, uh, weight loss, which didn't stick. And uh, <laughs> it was an amazing time, though. You literally could eat whatever you want and not gain weight. You just didn't want to eat, you know. So, I mean, I could have eaten five gallons of ice cream every night and never gained a pound, lost weight, but you didn't want to eat even a spoon of the stuff, you know. So anyway, he's listening to all these things, depression. So my wife says, what do you do when he has a side effect? Oh, well, we'll give him something for it. She looked at me and she looked at the doctor and she said, he's going to have to agree right now that he'll take something if we start realizing he's got some of these problems. Because she knew me in my anti medication kind of thinking, you know what I mean? Particularly when it came to emotional problems. She knew that I wasn't into antidepressants and that that sort of thing. Of course, I agreed. About three months into the treatments, I don't know what all those people's problem around me were, particularly family, but it wasn't me, I can tell you. It was them that had the problem, you know? I couldn't get over these people. I mean... I had my own room in the house because part of this medication, a drug called ribavirin, you had what they called rage. I couldn't stand to be around people, especially my family, because they had problems big time, you know. (laughs) And every time they suggested, you know, they said this is going to happen, you need medication, I'm like, no, it's not me, it's you people, you know. So anyway, one day I'm in the doctor's office and he says, how are things going? And I said, you know, kind of sheepishly, well, I've had a few mood changes. <laughs> he says, uh, <laughs> he laughed. He said, I told you. I'll give you something for it. I looked at him and said, Doc, I don't want to be a zombie. He laughed again. He said, well, I give you a gift to an infant. He says, you, your serotonin levels are so out of whack, you've got to get something to bring this stuff into balance and so on and so on. So I started on antidepressants. Now, I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to tell people how to deal with their problems, emotional and everything else, you know. I can't let anybody know I'm taking antidepressants, you know, because what will they think then? And my own guilt. I just need to pray more. I just need to trust God more. I just need to read more. Couldn't read, couldn't pray, couldn't think half the time. 
I'll tell you what. I started on those antidepressants. And believe me, I want to qualify this by saying I know we live in a society that is way over-medicated in many instances. But there are legitimate times when you got to have something. And so I began to level out. Time go on. I realized I was getting a little edgy again. I increased the dosage a little, you know, and leveled me out. And then eventually, uh, when I finished the treatments, I was able to wean myself off of the antidepressants. But it gave me a fresh appreciation for people who experience certain problems. And, you see, those big, bad pharmaceutical companies that people often lambaste and knock, Saved my life with the drugs that they produce, with their research and development and everything else. Now, God did it. But guess what? He used medication to do it. Now, I say all that to get back to what I'm about to say. I was in North Carolina speaking at a conference, and I was talking to this man, and I, could, I just knew immediately. After you go through things, you know how your antenna goes up when you're around somebody else, and they're, they're going through a similar thing, and you, you just pick up on it, right? And so I knew that this guy was clinically depressed. I knew that he was fighting the same battle I did. Christian, trust God, don't take medicine, whatever, you know. And so I was actually preaching on the life of Hezekiah. And I was reading my Bible that morning. Boy, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm up speaking on this passage. And I, I read the next verse, verse 21. Because God healed Hezekiah. And then he, he told Isaiah this, Let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil, and he shall recover. And I looked right in the audience where that man was sitting, and I said, you know what the problem with Hezekiah was? The challenge was what? Where's your trust? Where's your confidence? What are you trusting in? And I said, trust God. Take the medicine. (laughs) Trust God. Take the medicine. Listen, God could have healed Hezekiah just like that, didn't he? But he didn't. He told Isaiah to make this plaster of figs, whatever it was, and to go put it on this, whatever the problem was. Trust God, Hezekiah. Take the medicine. And that is the message that some folks need to hear. In other words, it's not a lack of trust in God if you have to take medicine for certain things to be healed. Back to the message. But really, that's part of it. You see, it's sometimes we set up these false premises, don't we? Oh, to trust in God. If you do that, you're not having confidence in God. Wait a minute. It's God who healed Hezekiah. But he did it through means, didn't he? Think of the Savior. Comes up to a blind man. Stoops down, takes spittle, takes mud, puts it on his eyes. Others, he healed like that. With that man, he used means. God sometimes uses means. So, the miracle was performed. Fifteen years added to his life. The sundial of Ahaz, the shadow receding up the sundial backwards. And Hezekiah says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put this to music. We're going to sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. 
Now, what are the songs that they sang called in the Bible? There's a whole book of them. Psalms, yes. So I want you to turn with me briefly to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 120. You know what comes before Psalm 120? Psalm 119. 176 verses about the Word of God. Now, there's supposed to be a couple of them that don't have the Word of God mentioned, but I think if we keep digging, we'll figure out where it is mentioned. But 176 verses all about the Word of God. Watch what happens next. Psalm 120 is a song of degrees. You may have in the margin of your Bible ascent. It's the same word for steps. You know how many of these songs of degrees there are? I'll give you a guess. Fifteen. How many years were added to the life of Hezekiah? Fifteen. That's a candy bar. <laughs> That's a candy bar. Fifteen. Now, Hezekiah, whether he wrote these or not, you know, not all the Psalms were written by David. Most of them were. And some of them were arranged by other people. Fifteen songs. Is it possible that perhaps they're marking the experience that Hezekiah had? And he said, we're going to put these in the songbook. We're going to arrange these Fifteen songs of degrees to mark the, the, the miracle that God did in saving my life, delivering the city and everything else. Notice how the first one begins, Psalm 120. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. In every one of these psalms, you'll notice that it's as Jerusalem seems to be coming under attack. It's the same setting uh, that you have. Look in verse 122, in verse 2. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city compacted together, and so on. And in every one of these, you'll see that Jerusalem seems to either be surrounded or threatened. And where will they look? Where will they put their confidence? Now read Psalm 121, or look at it with me, because I think sometimes we need to get a correct reading of this. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. It's not I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. It's I will lift up my eyes unto the hills? No. From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord, which made the heaven and the earth. You see the difference? Looking unto the hills was a pagan thing. I don't look to the hills like these pagans do. My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. And he that keepeth thee will not slumber. He that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And so throughout these songs of degrees, which may have well been arranged to honor that and memorialize that great event in the life of Hezekiah, you'll find the subject of Jerusalem, Zion, 
in that particular place. Amazing, isn't it? In the very place where his father refused to believe, God gives him a sign. In the very thing that his father had built, the sundial of Ahaz. And Hezekiah believed. Where was his confidence? He trusted in the Lord. What a challenge for us today, isn't it? We all go through situations. They won't be identical to what Hezekiah went through. We will all find ourselves faced with the greatest question that we're ever faced with. Where is our confidence? In what or in whom are we trusting? And God has designed life so that we come up against situations to where we have to realize our confidence, our trust has to be in the Lord. I'll give you one last one as we close. What's true individually is true collectively. When it comes to the local church, where is our confidence? Not in men. That's not where it's to be placed, is it? Don't glory in men. Paul will say that very thing in 1 Corinthians, warning to the Corinthians. Don't put your trust in men. Your confidence. Not in the flesh. Let him that glorieth, glorieth in the Lord. God has designed the cross to break our confidence in man, in the flesh, in what we can produce. That our confidence, our trust might be in the Lord. And as an assembly of God's people, that expression of coming together, that our confidence is in God, in the Lord, the head And what he can do, not in man, no matter how gifted or skilled or eloquent or anything else. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for these amazing historical accounts given to us in Scripture. Real lives of individuals who found themselves in situations where they had an option, where they had a choice. Trust in God or trust in their own resources, whatever they might be. And really, we get up against it time and again in our own lives, sometimes as believers, often as believers. Where is our confidence? Where is our trust? We're thankful that you have proven yourself to be a God in whom we can place our full trust. You've proven yourself by giving your Son on Calvary's cross. And the Lord Jesus died that death that he died there, We don't need any other sign. God, who at sundry times in various manners spoke unto the fathers by the prophets in time past, in these days, at the end of these things, you have spoken to us in your Son. He is the complete and the final message in all that we need to hear and believe. If there's anyone here today, Lord, and they're not trusting in you, if their confidence is not in you for salvation, we pray today, do whatever it takes to break that confidence in whatever it is they're trusting in, that they might turn to you and believe on you and trust your Son, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Help us as a group of believers, as individuals uh, gathered collectively, to always remember where our confidence needs to be. And we give you thanks again for the great message that was even given to faithless Ahaz. The Lord himself will give you a sign. 
The virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So we thank you again in his name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.